All right, everybody, I am going to talk as loud as I can. Kevin, can you hear me back there? Yes. Excellent. All right. Uh, as we are settling and maybe grabbing a couple of extra cups of coffee, um, I'm going to encourage you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, I'm going to flip things around. You all know normally I do a really long introduction for a really short sermon. I'm flipping things around today. I'm actually going to do the sermon first and then introduction later. We're going to get really uh, crazy with that. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 8. We will also be in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Mark chapter 12, if you like to plan ahead. Uh, You all might know that on first Sunday, rather than do a verse-by-verse study of a chapter like we do on other weeks, on first Sunday we kind of use it as an opportunity to teach some kind of a key doctrine. Uh, And lately, we've we've been using First Sunday to address some kind of big issues that are happening in the culture that we want to make sure that we are responding to biblically. Uh, We address the whole issue of abortion. We address the issue of critical theory and how God's law trumps it, right? Today, we're going to have to address the issue of tyranny. And I I will just kind of acknowledge that you all know that I joke a lot about the government, right? You all have heard me make jokes and comments Um, I'm not going to do that today, though I'll be tempted. Uh, What I want to do is sit down and say, let's just acknowledge that there are things happening in our federal government that are not good. Uh, Things such as the promotion of of child murder. Uh, Things like uh, unlawful surveillance of people. Things like overtaxation. And what I am noticing among Christians is that there is deep concern as to what I should do about it. And you kind of have some groups that are kind of rabble-rousers that are like, well, let's go fight somebody. Um, And then there are others that are like, let's just pray about it and not do anything. And what I want to do today is address what does God say, uh, because we do believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, right? That God's word doesn't leave itself silent on key issues. We don't have to wonder around about like, well, what do I do in situations such as these? And so what we're going to do is have a look here, first of all, at 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 8, uh, where in this passage we see that the whole issue of tyranny is being brought up by the people. Except this time they seem to be wanting it. And so if you pay attention to me, uh, pay attention with me to this passage, I'm going to pray and then we're going to read. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would work through me today, that as I speak, I would speak only in accordance with what is your will, uh, that I would not insert my opinion, but that only I would teach in accordance with what the principles of Scripture teach. Uh, and then, Lord, give us wisdom, because we are in some troubling times. Uh, be with us. May your Holy Spirit illuminate the Word of God to us, convict us to be obedient to it, that you would receive glory. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel come to Samuel, and this is what they say. It says, Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, important backstory here. Uh, God had given his law. There was no king, but we had the law. And we had the prophet Samuel who had appointed elders and judges, and things were working out pretty well. When you have God's law and people walk in obedience to it, you don't need a lot of, I always like to say, my parents used to say, like, I don't need a lot of rules if we have a lot of relationship. Uh, And so it is, 
people were in relationship to God. God had a prophet who had set up governing structures, and God was their king. So reading on, it says, but, uh, so what, but they're asking, they're saying, no, 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 we want a king like all the other nations. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Well, this is a troubling thought. When they're asking for this king like other nations, Samuel is like, man, uh, what did I do wrong? And God's saying, like, don't you worry about it. They are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. And they're wanting to have a king to fulfill what I am doing, says God. They're rejecting me, not you, Samuel. So try not to sweat it too much. Verse 8, it says, According to all the deeds that they have done from, this, from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So notice, he's like, do what they say, but you tell them how bad it's going to be. Verse 10, it says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to, uh, to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Uh, as we understand, there was an idea of having your foot soldiers run in front of your chariots. And the more you had there, the more it showed your status. Right? Even though it was dangerous, even though the horses run faster, even though all these kinds of things, he's like, look what a great king I am. And he's like, here's what he's going to do with your kids. He's going to, subscri- he's going to conscript them for war and force them to go out and do dangerous things that they would not otherwise do. Reading on. He says, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the implements of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. That's interesting that he doesn't say a tenth. He says he will take the tenth. Anybody remember where the tenth comes up when it comes to resources? Melchizedek, Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek. We see it built into the law. Uh, The idea of the tenth precedes the law of God with Melchizedek. It goes all the way into the New Testament. And the idea, as we see in Leviticus 27, is God says, I'm the one who provides. I'm the one who brings the harvest. I'm the one who gives you what you need. So give a tenth back to show that I own it all. So the idea of a king taking the tenth, and not just a tenth, but the tenth, is he's setting himself up and saying, I'm the one who brings you what you need. I'm the one who stands in the place of God as your provider, so give me a tenth. The idea here is that a tenth, a taxation of a tenth, was seen as so egregious, it was like the king was setting himself in the place of God. And this is all in a warning. Samuel saying, this is what this king is going to do. Don't reject God, because you are going to get something far worse. Reading on. 
Verse 16, it says, He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king uh, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. In verse 19 it says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Think about the fact, what made Israel so special was that they had this beautiful, perfect law that God had given them. He had rescued them, and he was ruling them. And what is Israel doing? They're doing in accordance with what they did in the book of Judges. And they're saying, nope, we don't want you. We don't want your law. We want it our way. In fact, and our way is exactly what all these other nations did. And they're like, we want a king like other kingdoms. And usually that went with, we want idolatry like other kingdoms as well. And so God is saying to Samuel, "Uh, they're rejecting me. Don't take this personally. And they're going to suffer. Key point here, brothers and sisters, is that tyranny of any kind is always preceded by rejecting God's authority. Every time. When we look at the cycle of the book of Judges, it wasn't that people of God were obeying God and doing great and loving Him and teaching their children to love Him, and then all of a sudden something terrible happened. It was always that they fell into idolatry, that they rejected God, that they engaged in some type of sin, and God said, okay, I am going to give you what you asked for. And he gives them tyranny. And then they suffer. And as was the case in Judges, usually they would cry out to God. And he would usually send, in the case of Ehud or Jael, uh, someone to commit tyrannicide. Uh, As we will see, we don't see that so much later on, but we certainly see that in Judges. Reading on. In order to kind of understand what's going on here, I need to set some parameters. Uh, We need to understand that government is not a bad thing. And despite my jokes every now and then, I need to acknowledge that God has designed government. It is part of his perfect design over the world. Uh, He beautifully planned that there would be leaders, that there would be rulers, and that there would be structure for this thing. Uh, But he has divided it into certain segments. And generally, people will say there are three, and in some cases they will say four, types of authority in Scripture. Uh, The one would be within the church. We have pastor, shepherd, elders. uh, And elders are co-equal authorities that provide oversight in the church. That's God has designed leadership in the church to be done through elders. Uh, Second, we see in family that husbands and fathers oversee a household and then They lead in that way, they provide and they protect, and they fulfill a very similar role to the civil magistrate, but they fill that role in their home. Uh, We see also in the civil arena that we have civil magistrates, whose job it is to be slaves to the law of God, slaves to God who apply his law. That's what we see in Romans 13. Uh, They're to be a terror for evil, and they're to preserve and bless good. Simple as that. We also see references in scriptures to masters or, uh, or overseers in the workplace that oversee servants and employees. And so we could say that we see those four types of oversight in scripture. Um, I don't know. Can anybody think of anything else? I can't think of anything else, right? What we often see, though, uh, is that there are times in scripture in one of those leaders or one of those types of leaders oversteps their God-given commands. And here's what's interesting. In all four of those types of authority, God has given very specific commands as to what those leaders are supposed to do. They're simple, they are limited, and they are not to be overstepped. 
generally, we define tyranny, we, that's an English term that essentially means oppressor. Scripture talks often about oppression. Um, and not oppression in the critical race theory sense, like gets thrown around, but oppression when one leader begins doing things in accordance with his own will as apart from God's will. Pretty simple. If we're going to define tyranny, it's when a ruler goes beyond their God-given duty to rule. Uh, we see this in a church when a pastor or elder uses his authority to abuse someone else or when he abdicates his authority and does not provide adequate shepherding or protection. Like moving lunch? Like moving lunch? It's probably <laughs> tyranny. Yes, tyranny. Yeah, that was, that was bad. Oh, don't bring up the sore subject. Ouch. Um, yeah. Yeah. We had almost forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, this is how you know it's, it's Dan's guilty conscience, right? He knew it was his idea. Just teasing. Um, second, when a father becomes a tyrant in his home, he exasperates his children, he abuses his wife, he fails to provide, that would be a form of oppression, although we generally wouldn't use tyranny to refer to that, but that's kind of what we'll even say. Like, this guy's being a tyrant, right? Similar in the civil arena, when a magistrate fails to be a terror to evil, Romans 13 is so explicit that the job of the civil magistrate is to be a terror to evil, a blessing to good, and that he's essentially supposed to be God's servant to apply God's law. So when a magistrate fails to build into the daily living laws that align with God's law, when he begins to fail to be a terror to evil and becomes a terror to good, he has stepped over into the realm of tyranny. Similarly, when he begins doing things that are for a father over a home to handle, or a mother over a home to handle, or when he begins trying to dictate things in accordance with what an elder or shepherd or pastor should do, now he's stepped outside of his realm, and he has no authority there, and he is functioning as a tyrant. I think we should just acknowledge, at times, uh, we have misappropriated Romans 13. And we've said, we've got to respect the governing authorities. And I'm like, absolutely, we need to, as long as they're doing what they have authority over. I don't have any authority as a pastor elder to step into the courthouse and start making decisions in accordance with who's guilty and who's not. It's not my job. And if I began doing that, I'm in error. It is not my job to tell fathers, while I can teach and shepherd them, it's not my job to show up and say, you know, here's what time your kids need to go to bed. Um, it's not my job to say, like, well, here's how much you need to budget for your vehicle. I might say, ooh, that was kind of unwise stewardship. And I might look to scripture and say, mm, be careful here. But I don't have authority in that way in your home. Does that make sense? And if I stepped into that, you all should be calling the other elders and saying, like, Dan's really getting involved in business that isn't his. Like, somebody needs to rebuke Dan if, if I was doing that. Um, I almost brought up the meal thing again. Or if Dan starts changing, like, that's under the purview of the ladies, right? Um, and I think we could play this out similarly when a, when a boss fails to provide a safe work environment, when a boss fails to, um, <laughs> Kathy's shaking her head because that's her field, right? Um, when a boss fails to pay what he has agreed to pay, uh, when a boss tries to get involved in, in your life in ways that aren't his business, and we can say, and so just understanding this is our working definition in scripture, uh, this is called oppression. 
Uh, we throw the term tyranny to it because it's simply an English term that means that. Can I just acknowledge a few things without getting me on more watch lists? I'll just point out that our government, sadly, violates some key laws. Uh, we know that the IRS just hired, they're, they're in the process of hiring like 87,000 new tax agents. Uh, added to the current ones they have, that'll be about one tax agent to roughly 900 citizens. Uh, that means they will be in a position to audit all of us. Uh, and I think we should be concerned about that. Uh, they're going to try to justify their own existence. They are going to find ways to tax us. But here's what's interesting. Remember that God, when he was warning the people of Israel about their rebellion against his kingship, he says, watch out. This guy's going to tax you at 10%. Well, right now, brothers and sisters, the average American taxpayer pays, pays 26%. Many pay even more, some less. But can I just acknowledge, like, that's even far above what was considered absolutely egregious. That's more than double. I'm not even a mathematician, and I know that that's more than double. Right? Can I just acknowledge, that's wrong. That's tyranny. I'm not telling you don't pay your taxes. That's not what I'm arguing for. But I am pointing out that, like, that, that means the civil magistrate has overstepped his bounds. Right? It is right for him to tax. I know I say taxation is theft. I do believe that income taxation is not a good thing, right? But, but taxes has a place. Like God has commanded it in Romans 13. But man, when we're taxing at that level, that, I mean, that's just wrong. I'm, I'm going to say it from, from scriptural principle. It's wrong. Uh, continuing on, we can kind of see where you know, the Federal Reserve has now done what the old Caesars used to do when they would shave down the coins and make the, dollar, make the coinage worth less it's, by the way, why we have ridges on our quarters, because you can't shave them. Well, the Federal Reserve found a way around that, and now they just digitize money and put it in the account holders uh, of various banks and whatever, and now the American dollar does not match what it used to be worth. I know we all are dealing with inflation right now, but let me just acknowledge this in Scripture is called unequal weights and measures. If someone pays you a dollar for your work, or for your product and says, this is what I'm paying you and it's worth a dollar. And then someone else prints a second dollar and now your dollar is worth half what it was, that's unequal weights and measures. When that dollar that is printed extra is given to a banker who can lend it out and then charge interest upon it being charged back, now, now, now we're giving money to people who get to make money on it that really shouldn't have in the first place. It is unequal weights and measures, and God calls it an abomination. I think we could similarly say, when a law goes into effect that's supposed to protect the unborn, and it says, you know what, you can abort your baby, uh, but as long as it doesn't have Down syndrome. If your reason is you're aborting the baby for Down syndrome, you can't do that, but you can get other abortions. That's an unequal weights and measure. That is an abomination to the Lord. Uh, if a law goes in place that says, well, listen, you can abort your baby as long as we can't get its heartbeat yet. So we're, we're going we're gonna to protect babies based on, based on whether or not we can hear their heartbeat, but you can kill them if the heartbeat's not there. That's an unequal weight and measure, and Scripture calls it an abomination. We could go on. I don't want to take too much time, but we know that there are terrible things going on in, uh, in the world that uh, our federal government seems to be turning a blind eye to. Uh, in, not to get all conspiracy theory, but it's like, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted of terrible crimes, and nobody's going after her clients. Well, that's troubling, isn't it? That is troubling. That, that is a government that is no longer being a terror to evil. 
uh, during the riots, uh, the Black Lives Matter riots, and people are like, this is mostly peaceful as buildings are burning and people are losing their livelihood. And they're saying, ah, don't worry about it. Um, that is no longer a civil magistrate that is being a terror to evil. Uh, I, I know this is, a, this is a lot controversial, but can I just acknowledge, like, this is what it is. It's wrong. All right. Continuing on, we could list a whole bunch of things. We could talk about unwarranted surveillance. We could talk about executive orders uh, that are promoting infant murder. Uh, We could talk about public schools that forcibly take your property money through taxation, similar kind of to like what King Saul was going to do, we were warned against. says he's going to take your fields, your priced fields, and now we are forcing to, we're being forced to pay for child indoctrination in public schools. Like, that's, that's wrong. Anyway, uh, we could go on for a lot of things. And so then the big question then for believers is like, what are we supposed to do? Because can I acknowledge that there are some among us, and I would be among them if I let myself, that get really angry and say, let's fight somebody. And the next question is like, who are we going to fight? Right? Um, and chances are, it's not going to go well. But can I just acknowledge, believers should be asking, what should we do? This is tyranny, and what am I supposed to do about it? Uh, When I watch the Loudoun County School Board meetings, and as parents are saying, this is wicked stuff being taught to my kids, and the FBI said, aha, terrorist, because he disagrees with us. I get pretty doggone mad, and I want to know, what do I do? Like, what what do I, as a faithful believer, I love Jesus, I'm imperfect, but what do I do in the face of that? And so we're going to just acknowledge a few things here and say, all right, what has God commanded us to do? Because there's good news. Some of this you're already doing. So here, uh, just acknowledge a few things. In Luke chapter 4, 18, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is interesting. Right? Notice this is what he does. In Acts 10.38, it talks about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Romans 6.18, we also see Paul, when he's referring to sin, and he says, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Scripture continually associates Sin and the oppression of sin, the slavery to sin, with a type of tyranny that Jesus frees us from. And then we actually see where Jesus literally goes about freeing people when he is on the earth. And so there is an interesting thing to note that, like, well, God, when he's talking about sin, uses oppression language. And I don't want to sew too much together too fast, but you see, when God says, I'm your king, you're rejecting me by wanting a king like other kingdoms. And what happens is that always goes with sin, and then they're under oppression pretty quick. How interesting that when Jesus comes to bring freedom, he begins by freeing captives from sin and bringing them into obedience to his kingship. Cool? All right, so uh, we're not going to go through all these, but there's plenty of examples of tyranny in Scripture. I just want to point out that in every case, it always involved the children of Israel denying God and falling into sin first. Just acknowledge that. When you have a tyranny problem, it is always preceded by a sin problem. And it's really, really easy for us to ignore the sin in our hearts and say, look at this terrible guy who is pounding a podium in front of a building 
that is supposed to represent freedom, and he begins saying things like, everybody who disagrees with me is an extremist. And it's easy for us to say, that guy stinks, and we would be right. And then to continually ignore the sin in our heart, because we can say, well, at least I'm not a tyrant like that guy. Um, and I can easily get upset at the tyranny of, uh, just speak it, I can get upset about the tyranny of Joe Biden and ignore the tyranny of sin that claims my heart. All right? The question at hand here, brothers and sisters, is who is your king? And the answer is revealed by who it is you obey. And so, if you would turn with me. No, the intro is done now. Don't worry, I won't be very long. Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4. And when Paul is talking, when Paul, sorry, when God is giving his law to his people, this is what he says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign to your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You guys getting this? God is saying, I'm the one God. You need to love me and you need to love your neighbor and then you need to teach all of this to your kids. And as you teach it to your kids, put up signs on your house. Put up things on your hands and your forehead so that people know that I am your God, that you belong to me, and you obey my law, not somebody else's law. How interesting. This sounds a whole lot like what they're supposed to do is make God their king. Now, you all might remember from our study from Revelation when we were talking about what what was the mark of the beast. Well, there's debate on what is the exact mark or what was, if you're a preterist, right? But notice, what was it that the beast wanted? He wanted his mark on your forehead or on your hand. The faithful believer, Jew, would have said, that sounds a whole lot like Deuteronomy 6.4 where God says, I want my law on your forehead and on your hands. In fact, I don't just want it there. I want you to be talking about it when you lie down and when you get up and when you sit down to eat. I want, your, I want it written on the walls of your home. I want everybody to know that I'm your king. I'm your God. This is your law. And what does any enemy of God want? He wants all of those things so that he can be in the place of God. Just like when Samuel was warning the people of Israel and he's like, yeah, that guy, He's going to want the tenth, just like God wanted the tenth. He's going to want your land, just like God should have your land. He wants your children, just like God should have your children. And every one of these things should sound very familiar to us, brothers and sisters. Reading on. How interesting, then, when they confront Jesus in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28... It says, And one of the scribes came to him, and when they heard him disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Little side note, you guys remember, other places Jesus has said, The whole law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Right, uh, we've taught this other times uh, that the idea that like every law from God 
is built in with these two laws. You can do it with the Ten Commandments. The first four are about loving God. The last six are about loving others. Everything in the Old Testament law is either about loving God or loving others, and it is as simple as that. The way that we show that we belong to God is that we obey his commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We sung about it today. Simple as that. And so it says, uh, verse 33, uh, hold on, 32, it says, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all heart and with all understanding and with all strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all, all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that, they answered, that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from the kingdom of God when we obey the two great commands. Right? Notice the two great commands. The first one is preceded by, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Built into the two great commands is absolute obedience and love to God our Creator. Simple as that. Cool. All right. So isn't it interesting then that when Jesus, so he goes about saying, it's just the old news, guys. The old news is good news. Love God and love your neighbor. This is what I'm preaching to you. And Jesus is going about as the one true king telling us this thing. So then it makes sense that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when he's giving the great commission, it says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Every last bit of it belongs to Jesus. That means Joe Biden is under the authority of Jesus Christ the King. That means that the township trustee is under the authority of Jesus Christ the King. That means that the father of every home is under the authority of Jesus Christ the King. That means your boss is under the authority of Jesus Christ the King. And they might not acknowledge it, but it doesn't matter. It is all his kingdom. And then he says this, having communicated that he's already in charge. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Interesting. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is everywhere. Everywhere. And its citizens are marked by whether or not they have repentance and faith in the gospel, obedience to God, and gospel proclamation. Um, that's, That's simply what it is. So if I'm going to think about like, okay, well, how am I going to fight tyranny? Well, it's pretty simple if we're going to just draw a distinction between what brought about tyranny as opposed to what removes tyranny. What brought about tyranny was rejecting God and his kingship. What brought about tyranny was denying the kingship of Christ and denying loving God first and loving others. If we are going to see it gone, what we have to do is obey God rather than men. We have to do what he has commanded. All right, so some basic kingdom commands, just to reiterate from Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're supposed to know that God is one. We're supposed to believe in the one true God. Uh, We're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Teach your children to love and obey God. Like, that's part of the commandment. That's part of the Deuteronomy 6 Shema. I need to disciple my children so that the next generation honors God. And then I am to ensure my obedience to God is visible that people know by how I do my work and how I live my life and even how I decorate my home that my family and I belong to God. And I think that's a pretty simple thing. 
I'm supposed to obey God. Like, that's done. It's like, check. If you want to say, how do we fight tyranny? Obey God. And there's a certain sense and we can, we can just kind of mark that off and say, well, we're done. But we do need to acknowledge a couple of nitty-gritty things. I will just point out, if we're looking at kingdom of God as opposed to rebellion against God, uh, there's, I've got notes on that that I sent out. But there's a pretty interesting comparison. We have lawfulness or righteousness. We have with God uh, children honoring parents, and we have with anything away from God, we have children rebelling against parents. And we could kind of go. Uh, the kingdom of God, you have people working hard to provide for their families with Anything that's against the things of God, you have laziness and debauchery. Um, and of course, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10? He says, or do, you not, do you not know that the unrighteousness, or unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, like, either you're in my kingdom or you're not in my kingdom. If you're in my kingdom, it's because you have repented and believed the gospel. And if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. This does not mean perfection. We've already talked about this, right? In case somebody's worried about like, well, I sinned today. Yes, but you have repentance and faith. Praise the Lord that you are walking in repentance. I don't have time to go into that whole thing here of why we recognize that like, you don't have to be completely sinless because Jesus was sinless for you. But everybody's with me on that, right? Cool got to do my footnotes. The question here, brothers and sisters, is between Christ, Christ and chaos. Either I will obey God or there will be lawlessness. And even if it is a king or a president telling me to do something, if it is against God's law or if he is outside of his God-given responsibility, it is lawlessness. This is why we would say resistance to tyranny begins with obedience to God because tyranny is resistance to God's ultimate authority. And so this is why Jesus says, if you will love me, you keep my commandments. Um, so I, I, everybody's clear on this, right? I don't think this has been too controversial so far, right? I'm almost done. But can I just say, if you want to fight tyranny, disciple your children. If you want to fight tyranny, love God. If you want to fight tyranny, have family devotions and family worship in your home. If you want to fight tyranny, learn catechism, teach it to your kids. If you want to fight tyranny, memorize scripture, teach your kids to memorize scripture. If you want to fight tyranny, make sure that some heathen is not teaching them about the things of how the world works. Make sure that they are learning their worldview from the word of God, and you will do quite well. For crying out loud, brothers and sisters, uh, we're going to outbreed the enemy if we just faithfully disciple. More on this later. Uh, so we also need to address biblical approach uh, to tyranny that goes beyond this. So obviously, uh, a few key quick things, but I just need to address this. Um, I can obey God and obey righteous rules. Uh, the prophet Daniel, when he disobeyed, it meant something because he was so perfectly obedient in every other way. Daniel wasn't a rabble-rouser who created problems all the time so that they were really glad to get rid of him when, when he finally said, you know, I'm going to pray to God instead of Darius. Right? Daniel was obedient. So it meant something when he disobeyed. So let me just say, obey God and obey government. That's first step, right? Uh, second thing, we can obey God and appeal to the lesser magistrate. We see this in Daniel 1. When he is told to do something that's against the law of God, he doesn't throw a fit and scream and you know lay down and set something on fire and whatever. He doesn't do that. What he says is, hey, can we work something out? 
Uh, we call this appealing to the lesser magistrate, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. If you are asked to do something you should not, begin by trying to make an appeal to get around it. Don't start a fight unnecessarily. Show your grace by trying to work something out. Appealing to a lesser magistrate. Uh, second, we see at times where there is a need to obey God by disobeying and deceiving. Uh, this might sound crazy, but this is what we see in Exodus 1 when Pharaoh says, hey, I want you to kill the Hebrew babies. And you know what they would do? They would go, as the mother was delivering the baby, they would deliver the baby and not kill the baby. And then Pharaoh's like, how are these babies getting born? And they're like, and they just straight lied. They're like, well, the, the Hebrew women, they're just such vigorous birth givers that they've delivered the baby by the time we get there and we don't have time to kill the baby. And so they lied, and God calls it an act of faith, and he honors them. Because they lied to a tyrant to keep him from murdering children. Uh, I would say this is why where every now and then people have like an, an ethical issue with like when hiding Jews during World War II and lie, lying to the Gestapo. I'm like, no issue there. This is biblical. You don't allow a tyrant. He doesn't deserve the truth if he's going to use it to murder people. Done. All right. The other thing we at times see is obeying God by defying tyrants. And this is where we stand up and openly and honestly say we're defying this. We see this in Acts 5.29 when the apostles preached the gospel even though they were told not to. And they're like, we just can't not do this. Uh, we see this in other places like in Daniel 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say we're not going to worship that idol. Do what you wish, but we're not doing nothing. We see this with Daniel when he hears about the decree not to pray to anybody except Darius, the king. What does he do? He goes home, he opens his windows, and he flagrantly defies it. Because the issue there was somebody is trying to act like God, and you don't get my worship, and you don't get to think you get my worship. I defy that. You guys with me? Here's the last thing. I do not advocate for this. But there are random, not random, there are very specific instances in Judges 3 and Judges 6 and a few others where God actually commands the slaying of tyrants. I'm not advocating for this right now, but there was a very specific call on very specific people and they obeyed it. Anyway, for the sake of not getting arrested tomorrow, I'm not going to go into any detail beyond that. But I do want to point out something uh, very quickly because some of us are like, well, what do we do with what's going on right now? Right? Do I just pray at home? And I would say, if you are doing that, you're doing something good. And if all you do is disciple your children and we win through the next generation, praise God. But can I also point out a comparison between the American War for Independence and the French Revolution? The American War for Independence followed all the steps I just gave you. We had faithful, reformed Presbyterians. There's probably a few Baptists. Um, faithful, reformed Presbyterians. And even those that weren't faithful were ones who were understanding through the writings of John Locke that they were following biblical principles of freedom. And they appealed to the king. In fact, if you read the Declaration of Independence, what, what we see there is they're like, we've tried here. We tried appealing to the lesser magistrate. We tried saying, hey, King George, you are violating your own law and the law of God. And there was every step went in place. Biblical principles went in place. And at, at some point they're like, guys, We've got to be the lesser magistrates here, and we've got to defend our people against the tyranny that's over there. And let me tell you, I would argue that the American War for Independence was a reformation rather than a revolution. The French Revolution was something entirely different. There was no appeal to external authority. There was no appeal to scripture. And it became a terrible bloodbath because there was no order. There was no law of God being applied. Right? founding fathers of our country graciously said, 
God is king, and we will not have another king who is in place before him. The French Revolution didn't do that, and it went really bad. So, brothers and sisters, we want to talk about responding to tyranny. We need faithful obedience to God. Love God, love your neighbor. This means, like, genuinely, like, care for your neighbor. Like, be a good neighbor. Make sure that people understand that you are loving and you are kind, that your children are behaved better because you love Jesus. Let them see you do family worship on the back deck. Let them see that you are a household of God. Preach the gospel to them. Love God and love your neighbor. Teach your children. Deuteronomy 6.4 is not messing around. Make sure your children know the things of God. Don't assume that they're getting everything they need in church. Disciple them at home. And please don't assume that they're getting benign information in a public school. Uh, They are not. Make sure that you're at least correcting that. And if you can, homeschool them or put them in a Christian school. Uh, And then we're to preach the gospel. Similarly, we've already responded. Faithful resistance to tyranny sometimes involves disobedience to tyranny. We've all gone through that. I'm not going to say it twice so that Google puts me on all the algorithms to, you know, notify the NSA. Um, That was mostly a joke. Mostly. Um, (laughs) We have a couple of people who worked in intelligence with the military here, and they're the first ones to laugh because they know it's too close to true. Uh, So, brothers and sisters, this is why the gospel is the primary weapon against tyranny, because Jesus sets captives free. Um, This is why when you actually say Jesus has died for your sin and risen from the dead and you can repent and believe, what you're doing is making him king. This is why Romans 10.9 says that we're to declare God our king, declare Jesus our king. Brothers and sisters, this is the hope we have. Uh, So really quick, if you want to go to the last slide, I'll just mention a few resources here and then I'm going to wrap us up here because we need to eat. Uh, A couple of resources if you want to check this out more. Uh, Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. A really good, good book on how God has designed law to be the authority that, we, that gets applied. His law is to be applied, and that's the role of the civil magistrate. Uh, Vindicie contra tyrannis. Uh, I know it's a Latin title. It's not all in Latin. It's actually translated in English by Junius Brutus. Uh, this was written by the French Huguenots, who were faithful believers that, other than sprinkling babies, would have been in pretty much our exact theology. And they actually fought to protect their families against tyranny. Uh, highly recommend that book. The other one is C.R. Riley's book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Gives you an idea about how discipling in your home is the central thing you need to be doing. Uh, Slaying Leviathan is also a great one by Glenn Sunshine. It goes through the history of freedom in Christ from uh, B.C. all the way up to now. Excellent book. Uh, the last one there is the Magdeburg Confession. If you're not familiar, about 60 or so years after the, Rev, uh, the Reformation, there was a group of pastors in Magdeburg, Germany, that said, we're going to worship God in accordance with Scripture. And the Pope and the Emperor said, no, you're not. And they're like, yeah, we will. And they got ready and they said, we need lesser magistrates. We're going to protect our people so that they can worship freely. And those lesser magistrates fought Uh, the emperor, in order to say, no, 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 we're going to protect our people so that they can worship as they should. Some helpful resources. Hopefully that's good. Um, And I'm over on time by one minute. Ah, Sorry. Um, So let me close this out. Uh, Can I just ask this really quickly? What does all this say about God? What might these truths say about God? What's that? He loves us and he's in control. He wants our best. He created order. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, What does it say about us? 
We are subject to his rule. And I would say with that, we are prone to rebel. We are prone to rebel. Even, even when we think we're doing something good. I mentioned the French Revolution earlier. Man, there was some bad stuff going on. And they're like, ah, let's do something about it. God's law is supposed to be what gets applied, not my feelings, right? Yeah. Just, just, just one, one thing I, I, I know we're over, but um, you know, so, you know, I, I know some people who will totally agree with this and be totally right on with it, but they have made the U.S. Constitution the 67th book of the Bible. Yes. And will then take all of this and put it through that prison. Yes. Yeah. So that instead it's like, a, so now you're, you're worshiping the Constitution instead of God. Yeah. How do we deal with this? First of all, I would, I would say to that person that they have committed idolatry, right? That God's law is supposed to be king. And I can say, praise God, our Constitution is pretty doggone good, but it's not perfect. Uh, I look at it similar to certain, well, it's not as good, but old creeds and confessions that I would say, hey, these are helpful, but they're not God's word. And I would say the same thing, similar, although lesser, with the Constitution. So one thing I would say is, like, brothers and sisters, your citizenship is to God's kingdom first. Um, and the, our job is to bring this nation under God's authority fully. And if you are doing anything other than that, if you're putting the Constitution first or your political party first, you're in error and you need to repent. Because what do we see? We see this in churches, too. Uh, Israel wanted a king like other kingdoms, right? Well, sometimes well, we, want, we want a prime minister, we, we still kind of claim for a king like other kingdoms. Churches sometimes want a CEO like other businesses, right? It's like, no, no, no. God's law is supposed to be what trumps. We don't need this pure. <laughs> um, there needs to be God's law rule rather than the, the magistrate. The magistrate needs to be subjected to God's rule. So I'd have a long conversation with them, but I would, I would and have called them idolaters. They don't like that very much, but if I do it gently... They still don't like it. Yeah, Keith. Um, it kind of goes a little bit backwards, but where you were. But um, and this is uh, there's two sections of scripture, one in Jeremiah and one in Timothy. And I read this years ago, and then I go, boy, it sounds like Timothy. But it's before before the Israelites go into exile in Babylon. And it says, uh, the Lord told them, He says, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent them into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And its welfare, you will, you will have welfare. Amen. And so then I, was, I thought, when I was reading that years ago, I go, that reminds me of Timmy, and he says, first of all, that I urge that entreaties and prayers be petitions, thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are notorious, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all God's and Amen. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen. Good word, brother. Um, very good. Last thing, what does this say about the gospel? This is the three questions we try to end on every time. What does it say about God? What does it say about us? What does it say about the gospel? It has the power to defeat. Yes! Yeah. Man, the gospel wins. Can I just tell you guys? Think about in AD 70-ish, the people of God, the Christians, were in fear of being murdered by whatever tyrant. And what did they do? Wherever they went in their little Christian diaspora, they preached the gospel. 
There were slaves preaching the gospel to their owners. Uh, there, were, there were people moving into other cities, running and preaching the gospel. And do you guys realize that it was only a couple of hundred-ish years later that we had won the known world to Christ? And to the point where Constantine eventually, as emperor, is like, man, I better get on board with this train. right? I'm hoping that his converse, uh, conversion was a real one. But let me just tell you guys, the gospel works. It still has power to save. Preach the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection. Yeah. Good. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I thought there was another question. All right. So uh, let's finish out. Who ha- Let me pray, and then who has gospel today? Kevin, all right. Uh, Lord, be with us. Uh, open our hearts to the gospel as we hear it proclaimed. In Christ's name, amen. Go for it, Kevin.